Hi, dear listener. Zach here. I'm proud of the work we did on Call of Discovery and Keyforge Public Radio, and last year I took my love of podcasts full-time with my company, Rooster High Productions. If you know someone with a business who wants to broadcast their expertise through podcasts and derived social media marketing, send them my way to Zach at RoosterHigh.com. Thank you so much. Welcome to Call of Discovery, the podcast where we invite you to join us for a weekly or fortnightly celebration of all things Keyforge, its community, and the excitement of discovery. I am coincidentally still your host, Ed Pocock, and today I am joined by Double Vault Tour Top Cutter and Keyforge blogger, Aror. For those of you listening for the first time, every two episodes we will be introducing a different member of the Keyforge community. In last week's episode, we explored the state of diversity in Keyforge and its community, and we asked what better diversity in the game would look like, how it would benefit the game, and what changes can be made to facilitate this. If you missed it, do go back and check it out. Hello, Aurora. Hi. Pleasure to be here. And today we are going to be talking about... One of Aurora's most treasured decks. You can find a link to the deck in your show notes. This will take you to Decks of Keyforge, where you can join us in discovering the deck as we discuss it. And uh, without further ado, would you like to introduce us to the deck? Absolutely. Uh, the name of the deck is uh, Fleur the Conspicuously Philanthropic. Um, I love... The name alone. Yeah, I love the Absolutely name. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Uh, another bonus for it is um, my uh, top 16 uh, Voltour deck is called Charles Fleur. So they both have the word Fleur in their name, which is awesome. Wow. Were they in the same box when you, when you no, got them? No, this one is uh, uh, Call of uh, the Archon and uh, Charles Fleur is uh, Age of Ascension. Well, that's a, a lucky coincidence yeah. then. Or conspicuous, we could say. <laughs> I opened this deck probably sometime um, on the way to um, practicing for Krakow. And I just looked over it and probably immediately dismissed it because of the very, very low amber control value. On Decks of Keyforge is currently listed as 3.8 amber control, which is below what I would consider ever taking to a Volto. Actually, when I came back from Krakow, I looked over my collection because I was over with the super competitive and I just wanted something fun to play. I just looked this deck over and I was like, I don't even remember opening this. It just did not register at all. I saw a Time Traveler and Help for Future Self and I decided to have a closer look. And it had so many cars that I love that it just had to take a closer look and play it. And I discovered something amazing. And tell us about this discovery. I just ran with the deck and I, I didn't really know what I was doing. 
I just went into a library access term. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, it's an action in Logos. You purged library access because there was an errata. And then every time you play a card, you draw a card. Uh, this has, deck has the time traveler, which has the help from future self action, which gives you one amber. Uh, you play it, search your deck for uh, time traveler or discard pile, and put it into your hand. Then you play the, discard, the time traveler, which is a two power creature with another amber, and draw two cards. So while playing all three of those, you generate a bunch of cards in your hand, and then you also have two phase shifts which is a Logos Actions, which allows you to play one non-Logos Action during a turn. And I was just, you know, going about my business. I have played Lapidary Access many times before, nothing special. And suddenly, I phase shifted, and I had Novo Archaeologist, which has a four-power creature, which has an action to uh, archive a card from the discard pile. I had a Doc Bookton out which is a five-power creature that allows to reap to draw a card. And I had a time traveler out. And I also had, in my huge hand, which I've drawn, a Relentless Assault. A Relentless Assault is a Brobner action card that says, ready and fight with up to three creatures. My opponent didn't have any creatures on the board, so I simply ready all three of my creatures, and I can use them again. So I reap to draw a card, I shuffle my time traveler back into my deck, I archive a card from the discard pile, and I keep going. And it was just so amazing. I just kept on drawing cards and drawing cards, and I eventually had so many cards in my hand that I, I, didn't, I didn't really know what to do. And then I saw that I also had a key abduction, which is a mouse card, which gives you one amber, and then returns all mass creatures to their owner's hand, both yours and your opponents, if they have any, and then allows you to forge a key at current cost, plus nine, minus one for each card in your hand. Having a hand of 15 cards means that you don't pay anything for uh, the key, and you just forge it. Along with the phase shift that I've already played in this turn, I just forge the key for free. And since my Novo Archaeologist is ready because of the Relentless Assault, I can archive the key abduction, pass the turn to my opponent, and the very next turn I'll just take it from my archive, play it again, another free key. This was just wonderful to discover live in a, in a game. I, didn't, I did not see this combo when I looked over the deck. It just happened while I played it, which is really the fun part of discovering a deck, just seeing it happen for the first time while you play it. And it's testament for the fact that we can always be learning more in Keyforge. I think I think it's impossible to look at a a deck list and and look at and find every combo without trying it. So never write off those decks that look interesting to you and um and always give them a go i'm going to pick out something else about the name in this deck because this deck is called philanthropic and i'm wondering if it is that equivalent of martian generosity you know <laughs> generosity philanthropy it's it's all it's all one and the same and they're both very, very much card draw decks with a high reliance on key abduction. I, I didn't notice that collection. 
connection but i i i I love it it's absolutely great and i must admit or i prepared for this episode by playing a few games with this deck on the crucible online and i absolutely loved it it was one of the most fun decks i think i've played you're absolutely right when you have that logos turn you play library access it really doesn't fizzle out because most of the cards you're using allow you to use other cards or draw more cards. For for example, Help from Future Self, the Time Traveler, as you mentioned, or the two phase shifts. They give you unprecedented ability to uh, to make the most of library access, but also have an amazing power turn uh, that make you feel borderline invincible and probably your opponent feel uh, slightly less so. Did you discover the Relentless Assault phase shift? I absolutely did, but I must admit that this was the combo that I failed to get off on the the game that I, I lost on the Crucible. So I played four games, I won three, I lost one. And the one that I lost, I probably had an opportunity to win, but I completely forgot about the phase shift and the relentless assault, and I think I played another card using the phase shift instead. If I played that relentless assault, I think I would have dealt with their board, dealt with the threats... And the win. Yeah. This this deck has all sorts of stuff going for it. One of the things that I love to do is um, there is a soft lock in uh, this deck. Uh, I go over soft lock in one of my uh, posts, my articles on my blog. Basically, a soft lock is a state that you generate which makes some action completely disadvantages to your opponent or disallows your opponent for doing something. This deck has two Scrambler Storms, which is an action that gives you uh, one amber, and your opponent cannot play actions on the following turn. It has two of those and two Novo Archaeologists, and if you have them out, then you can play a Scrambler Storm, then immediately archive it, and repeat it the following turn. And if you manage to stop your opponent from ever playing actions again, you have a huge advantage. This is one one combo I didn't discover uh, in my games. Oh, yeah, this, this took a long I, time uh, to get. I, with your permission, I'm looking forward to giving this a go. <laughs> of course, enjoy it. Anybody else as well. Absolutely. And it's a, it is a good way of discovering decks, playing them on, on the Crucible, playing different decks, playing different archetypes, uh, and, and just trying things out and having a go. Yeah, definitely. I... Uh... This deck actually took a really long time to completely figure out, and I'm not sure that I have. Like, sometimes I'm still unsure what I should archive with my Novo Archaeologist when I go off. And um, it it sometimes feels like I'm still trying to understand the inner workings of this deck. It just has so much going for it. It really takes time to find all the pieces and how they work. Uh, this, but this deck still has a very low amber control, and you have to make the maximum of the ones that it does, which is one crump, which is a six-power Bobna creature that any time an enemy creature is destroyed while fighting it, uh, your opponent loses one amber. It has one Mind Warper, which is a Mars creature with elusive and two power, and an action to put one amber from their pool on one of their own creatures. And lastly, uh, Psychic Network, which allows you to steal one amber for each ready mass creature that you have. And aside from that, 
you only have an ethel spider which is a seven power creature that does not deal damage also in mass and any amber that is put into your opponent's pool is put on the ethel spider and this card is actually sometimes detrimental to the deck because you want to be able to steal it sometimes with a psychic network and you have an ethel spider with all the amber so you can't steal it and then the following turn they kill the ethel spider and key charge or something and you didn't have any opportunity to, to uh, respond and uh, I was actually looking uh, on decks of Keyforge and just generally for decks similar to this that I might buy and might have like a higher amber control value but this deck is so unique that no other deck even close to it exists yeah yeah I'm not surprised I am absolutely not surprised and that's amazing isn't it because when you think about it, you kind of think, oh, I know all these cards. I've seen these cards before. I've seen them in different decks. So something like this must exist. But just the very nature of Keyforge is that there are so many possibilities. And these ingredients fit together in, in many different ways. And the use of the word ingredients there, I think, is quite apt. Because this deck to me does feel like a list of raw ingredients that can be cooked into any combo um, and I did certainly have the feeling that it was going to take me it would certainly take me about 40 games with this to to kind of scratch the service and feel like I, I understood and knew all of the potential combos within this deck yeah I actually did an, uh, uh, an exercise and wrote an article about it about uh, it was about the uh, mystery of Keyforge winning decks and I actually wanted to have a look and see if I can find another deck like the ones that won Voltools. And the answer is no. You cannot find more decks that play the same as Voltu winning decks. Even the ones that don't look unique at all, they are quite unique. Decks in Keyforge are extremely unique. Uh, even if you just look for a combination of six specific cards with one of them being rare, you're likely not going to find another deck. I think that really brings it home. And that's an interesting statistic. Anyone that's thinking, what is this blog? Where is it? There's a link to it in the show notes. It's called Time Shapers. And it is brilliant. There is also an article on there, uh, and possibly by the time you see it, a collection of articles about looking at your collection in a fresh perspective with a fresh pair of eyes and saying, are there any decks that I've missed out that could be really valuable to me? Certainly, this is something that gives me a bit of Keyforge anxiety, is the feeling that there might be a, a very pleasant Voltor winning deck somewhere in my collection that I'm just missing out, that I have failed to see and failed to make the most of. Quite right. Like I found this deck just lying around, I'm sure there are many others that are just lying around in somebody's collection and nobody's ever looked at it properly which is kind of exciting when you think about it uh, so ether spider is possibly one of my favorite cards in the game and i'm really interested that you you feel that it's slightly misplaced here maybe it's slightly against what the rest of the the deck is doing and i can kind of see that from a, a game plan perspective however i feel that the the spider had a separate effect that the opponent classifies it as it their number one threat when it comes out so i was almost using it as a bit of a decoy when the spider comes out and starts capturing a load of amber it almost slows your opponent down because 
quite often and and maybe this isn't the case for for some of the most astute players but and quite often people feel that this is their target this is the threat that needs to be dealt with so they'll throw everything they've got at dealing with it rather than progressing their own game plan which gives you the time you need and the space you need to uh, have one of those power logos turns that we were talking about earlier yeah, um, it can definitely be used to delay the game for a bit, maybe give you an extra turn in order to set up your combo. Some opponents will realize that Amber on the Ether Spider is still their Amber. And what a very good line of play against an Ether Spider is just generate enough Amber for a key on the Ether Spider and only kill it when you have established control. So your opponent cannot respond. You're absolutely right. That is the, the optimal way of doing it. I think one potential thing you can do with it to make it slightly more potent in this deck is put the, the biometrics back up on this. And this is the common Mars upgrade card. Gives you an amber pip and it says destroyed. Put this creature into its owner's archives. So essentially you can get that pesky ether spider back again and then play it again and give your opponent the headache all over again. I mean, it depends what you're playing against. If they have easy ways to kill creatures, then naturally that's not going to do you much. But if, if they have a hard time dealing with it, definitely. I personally like putting the biometrics back up either on the time travel though or the Novi Archaeologist, because they are very key cards in this deck. Absolutely, and having two of those, uh, two of those archaeologists really makes a difference. Particularly since it's not something that opponents will tend to target as a primary objective. Yeah, this uh, deck d tends to catch opponents off guard. People that have played against it a number of times have a better idea of what they're doing, but the first time they face it, it's it's gonna catch them a little by surprise. Like it caught me by surprise that night <laughs> when I first opened it. Yeah, absolutely. What card in this deck, if you had to pick one card, provides you with the most difficult decisions to make? Uh, aside from the Ethel Fighter that we already talked to about, I think the Phoenix Heart is a very interesting and intricate card to use. Uh, Phoenix Heart is an upgrade. Uh, the creature upgraded gets destroyed. Return this creature to its owner's hand and deal three damage to each creature in play. Using this correctly can be very difficult. You don't want to just put it on any creature when you have a white board because that just lets your opponent kill that creature to kill everything of yours. You usually want to play it and immediately have the creature die in a strategic way. And sometimes it's very difficult. Like you would, you would really think that you would really want uh, Phoenix Heart always to be on the time traveler because when it dies, we'll get back to your hand and you'll be able to play it again. But just having it sit there on the uh, Time Traveler can be extremely detrimental. Your opponent can just destroy the Time Traveler and wipe your entire board, uh, or not touch it and not let you uh, suicide with it and do anything, and then you have a Time Traveler with an upgrade that doesn't do much because you're gonna use the action to shuffle it back into your deck and and then the upgrade just gets discarded. So Phoenix Heart is definitely my most uh, thought-provoking card in this deck. I can agree with that experience from, from my own limited experience of playing with this deck as well. I, I found the same thing. I decided to discard Phoenix Heart because I had board control at the time. It felt like something that was only going to 
provide me with more risks rather than better better outcomes. Yeah, definitely. That's often the right decision. I did once uh, clear a board by playing it on a troll and then using anger to attack with a troll and then using a resonant assault to attack against with a troll and cleared my, my opponent's entire board with it. And then the troll was in my hand, so I just replayed it and I had a troll on an empty board, which is always nice. So we've spoken a bit about this deck being hard to pick up and... Do you feel, as a result, this would be a, a deck that could fare very well in adaptive games? Um, I have strong feelings about adaptive, and I don't particularly like it, uh, at least not the official format. The official format is that you play one game with your deck, and then you swap with your opponent's deck, and you play with their deck. And then in the third game, you bid chains on the deck that won twice. Uh, I tried yes. to write, write an article about why I dislike adaptive, and I kind of put myself in, the old, in, in, my, in a trap trying to talk about variance and how this affects it. But suffice it to say that if there is a huge power disparity between the two decks, then game one and two are usually don't matter at all. And that doesn't mean that they will be fast. They could be long and drawn out and still not matter because one deck is superior. And then you spend uh, an hour playing two games that don't mean anything because they have a foregone conclusion. And then you play one game where there isn't one. And you have no control on what power level your deck your opponent can bring. And bringing a very low power deck to adaptive matches has been a strategy that I've seen. And this can cause uh, that level disparity, which is not very fun. Just, it's just not fun for me. Uh, another thing is that you play your deck first rather than your opponent's deck first which means that you're basically giving them a lesson uh, in how to run it. I don't think adaptive tests that skill quite as well as I would like. If, for example, you started with playing your opponent's deck and they had a really simple deck and you had a really difficult deck, then yeah. that would be more that aspect of discovery. But still, this deck is extremely powerful even if you don't know what you're doing, like you won three games and lost one game the first four games that you've played with it. It's not that it's incredibly weak. And it... Aurora, are you trying to imply that I do not know what I am I'm doing? I'm trying to imply that <laughs> you didn't need 50 games in order to win with this. You're absolutely right. I didn't. Uh, I certainly but didn't. But it does take 50 um, games. It, it's got the goods. It does take 50 games to play this optimally. But you don't need to play optimally in order to win. It just gives no, you, like, no, I don't know, uh, right. if your natural win rate with this deck is 55%, then playing those 15 games will bring you to, I don't know, 58% or maybe 60%. My win percentage with this deck is about 60%. Which is a very strong win percentage, particularly if you're playing a lot on the Crucible, where the standard of the decks tends to be uh, much higher. I'm keen to dive into this adaptive conversation a little bit deeper. It's clearly a, an area that is quite emotive to the, the player base. Some people feel very strongly that adaptive is the purest form of the game, the most mathematical, um, and some people like yourself have reservations. I'd like to add to those reservations. For me, I 
do not feel as excited about playing adaptive as I do as maybe some of the other formats in the game. And that's not really for the reasons that you've spoken about. It's more for the fact that when I play Keyforge, I like to play something that's unique to me or something that's unique to a, a friend if I'm playing one of my friend's decks. I like to play a deck that I've come with. And it feels a bit strange to me, the idea of playing your own deck, then swapping with your opponent and then bidding for the maybe the honour of using your own deck or maybe if your opponent's is much better, um, having a few chains on that. So for me, it feels like a bit of an alien experience. And that's not to say it's a good or a bad thing. And I'm sure this is something we'll dive into a lot more in future podcasts. But it's just a different experience of Keyforge than than other formats provide. I've played some adaptive uh, leagues online and uh, I just didn't really enjoy it. There are people that really enjoy it and are really good at it. And I'm just not one of them. I might have to get better though if I want to participate in the Vault Tour Championship because that's the format there. The Vault Warrior, sorry. The Vault Warrior Championship. Okay. And, it, and actually, that's quite an interesting one. It looks at the di- direction of this game is going is they're going to be using a bit more adaptive on the on the money side and they're going to be using the other formats, the ones where, as you said, Aurora, there might not be a dead hour playing games where you know the outcome already uh, before before the real game starts. So back to this deck. I'm keen to now dive into maybe some of the weaknesses of this deck. You said it had a 60% win rate, which is is no mean feat in Keyforge um, to have a 60% win rate, particularly online. However, it sounds like there are maybe some weak spots with this deck. We've already spoken about the the amber control or lack thereof. Are there any deck archetypes that this deck really doesn't want to... Oh, definitely. Um... Anything that can generate a lot of amber very fast, since you don't have any amber control, there's no way to stop them. Uh, this deck takes a bit of time to set up. Uh, you want to archive a bit of things and uh, craft a hand that is good for you and get either the help of you to self or the time traveler with the library access in order to go off. And that's very hard to do if your opponent is generating uh, six, seven amber a turn and you don't have any way to stop them. Uh, furthermore, any deck that has a very big board, you'll, uh, this deck will struggle against because uh, you really want the opponent's board to be clear so you can play the Relentless Assault to ready your Logos creatures rather than fight with them. So those two things are obviously uh, weak points. However, it has a very big strength, which is it doesn't actually need any amber in order to win. So if you set yes. it up correctly, uh, you don't you don't need to generate amber. You, you, you do eventually because your things generate yeah. amber when you go off on your library access turn, but you don't need to generate any before that. And that means that any decks with heavy amounts of steel are just going to be a lot slower because they don't have anything to steal to generate their own amber. Which nullifies a lot of the meta, absolutely. And I, I'm, I'm laughing about this a bit because it, it feels counterintuitive, really, doesn't it, to a, a Keyforge game, the whole premise of which is gaining amber to say, hey, this deck doesn't really need to gain amber. It doesn't need to do that thing that every single other deck needs to do. But I, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. I don't think it does. Yeah, uh, if you set up yourself in a way that you can just play Scrambler Storm every turn while having 15 cards in your hand and also playing Key Abduction, 
your opponents will not be able to uh, play their actions to stop you and you just generate keys. There's, there's no way to, to get out of it. Another card that I found to be super effective in holding back your opponent, particularly you mentioned this deck being slightly weaker against large boards, the Double Deep Probe. Uh, this is a card that I hadn't really hadn't really seen much from previously i hadn't really rated it very highly it's a mars action it gives you an amber pip and it says choose a house reveal your opponent's hand discard each creature of that house revealed this way and for me that was that was operating like a dream i was consistently getting rid of two or three cards and gaining one amber uh, from my opponent's hand and really limiting their potential to build a board that's a very good sign for uh, decision making on your part what can I say? I'll, I'll take that one. I'll take that one. Uh, Relent, Relentless Assault as well seemed to be a very, very good tool for that. Yeah, so uh, Deep Robe is definitely one of my favorite cards. Uh, anything that allows you to see your opponent's hand and allows you to prepare for it is amazing. If you also be able to discard some of their cards, even better. Uh, this deck has actually a very cute combo you can pull off against other Mars decks is if you play the key abduction, you return all their masked creatures to their hand and then deep probe them for mass, and then they discard all of them, which is really annoying. Awesome, awesome. So I think we've covered a lot of exciting endeavors with this deck, but there's one question that remains, and that is, Aror, do you think you'll be taking this deck somewhere competitive? Are we going to be seeing this deck as the next Voltor winner? And how do you think this deck might fare in the future meta once Worlds Collide has been released? Well, I don't know a lot about Worlds Collide, uh, so it's hard for me to say, and I definitely have no predictions about how the meta will look like. Uh, regarding taking this to competitive events, I'm considering it. I have another combo deck, which shall remain unknown, which is probably a higher contender to be taken to a Volto. Uh, I love combo decks, okay. and um, I will def you'll definitely be seeing me playing combo decks at uh, Voltools, maybe even this one. Um, my next event is going to be the Grand Championship in uh, Utrecht, Holland, and it's survival format, which means that I can put a deck in the front spot and be less worried about if I lose with it, I'm out. So maybe this will get the spot. Awesome. Well, looking forward to seeing how this deck does, and I'm certainly going to be playing it a little bit more online. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Aurora. It's been a real pleasure having you on, and um, good luck with your up-and-coming Keyforge endeavours. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Please let us know to the audience now what you think of this deck. Is there something that we're missing that you've spotted that could be the next Worlds Colliding combo? Let us also know what you'd like to see more of or less of in future shows. It is still very early days for this podcast. We plan to stick around and your feedback is very, very welcome. Please subscribe on your regular podcast app. You can find us on Facebook, the Twitters, and you can email us questions at discoverkeyforge at gmail.com. Most importantly, if you think a friend would enjoy this podcast, please help them to discover it. Thanks very much for listening.